money ethic of civic responsibility, local and regional loyalties are sadly attenuated today. The mobility of capital and the emergence of a global market contribute to the same effect. The new elites, which include not only corporate managers, but all those professions that produce and manipulate information, the lifeblood of the global market, are far more cosmopolitan, or at least more restless and migratory than their predecessors. Advancement in business and the professions these days requires a willingness to follow the siren call of opportunity wherever it leads. Those who stay at home forfeit the chance of upward mobility. Success has never been so closely associated with mobility, a concept that figured only marginally in the 19th century definition of opportunity. Chapter 3, Opportunity in the Promised Land Its ascendancy in the 20th century is itself an important indication of the erosion of the democratic ideal, which no longer envisions a rough equality of condition, but merely the selective promotion of non-elites into the professional managerial class. Ambitious people understand, then, that a migratory way of life is the price of getting ahead. It is a price they gladly pay, since they associate the idea of home with intrusive relatives and neighbors, small-minded gossip, and hide-bound conventions. The new elites are in revolt against Middle America, as they imagine it, a nation technologically backward, politically reactionary, repressive in its sexual morality, middle-brow in its tastes, smug and complacent, dull and dowdy. Those who covet membership in the new aristocracy of brains tend to congregate on the coasts, turning their back on the heartland and cultivating ties with the international market in fast-moving money, glamour, fashion, and popular culture. It is a question whether they think of themselves as Americans at all. Patriotism certainly does not rank very high in their hierarchy of virtues. Multiculturalism, on the other hand, suits them to perfection conjuring up the agreeable image of a global bazaar in which exotic cuisines, exotic styles of dress, exotic music, exotic tribal customs can be savored indiscriminately, with no questions asked and no commitments required. The new elites are at home only in transit, en route to a high-level conference, to the grand opening of a new franchise, to an international film festival, or to an undiscovered resort. Theirs is essentially a tourist's view of the world, not a perspective likely to encourage a passionate devotion to democracy. In The True and Only Heaven, I try to recover a tradition of democratic thought, call it populist, for lack of a better term, that has fallen into disuse. One reviewer surprised me by complaining that the book had nothing to say about democracy, a misunderstanding I have laid to rest, I trust, in Chapter 4, Does Democracy Deserve to Survive? That he could miss the point of the book in this way tells us something about the current cultural climate. It shows how confused we are about the meaning of democracy, how far we have strayed from the premises on which this country was founded. The word has come to serve simply as a description of the therapeutic state. When we speak of democracy today, we refer, more often than not, to the democratization of self-esteem. The current catchwords, diversity, compassion, empowerment, entitlement, express the wistful hope 
that deep divisions in American society can be bridged by goodwill and sanitized speech. We are called on to recognize that all minorities are entitled to respect, not by virtue of their achievements, but by virtue of their sufferings in the past. Compassionate attention, we are told, will somehow raise their opinion of themselves. Banning racial epithets and other forms of hateful speech will do wonders for their morale. In our preoccupation with words, we have lost sight of the tough realities that cannot be softened simply by flattering people's self-image. What does it profit the residents of the South Bronx to enforce speech codes at elite universities? In the first half of the 19th century, most people who gave any thought to the matter assumed that democracy had to rest on a broad distribution of property. They understood that extremes of wealth and poverty would be fatal to the democratic experiment. Their fear of the